Lord God, I pray that we do indeed live a beautiful life, but let that beautiful life not be our definition or the world's definition, but yours. A beautiful life in faith, in the love and comfort and security of your Son, abide by your Spirit, living out your kingdom on earth. Let this be the beauty of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated and settle in. No. <laughs> There's something about, uh, for a preacher, which is uh, always exciting and terrifying about this moment. Exciting because obviously this is one of my favorite things to do and one of the things I'm most expected to do and also one of the most terrifying things because, one, I'm n you're never quite sure how it's going to turn out, even with all the prep, uh, but also, especially when you know there are things in the sermon, like the Sermon on the Mount, which are important, which are things that you desperately want people, not from me and not from my words, but you desperately wish and want people to take to heart and live out and take seriously and be transformed by. You're like... Ah, can we be here all day and just do this? I could. You well, Maybe one day. No? Okay. <laughs> Especially coming... To, <laughs> I still wish we could just do this all day. Not maybe listen to me, but I mean, maybe we should do that. All day church is like exciting for some people and terrifying others. I can see it on your faces. Some people are like, yeah, I could do that. Some people are like... <sighs> Regardless of that. The teaching that we're going to encounter today is a little bit uh, unique in the fact that we're going to cover some things which don't have an obvious flow, meaning they're part of the Sermon on the Mount, but yet it seems that Jesus isn't so much doing uh, one broad, easy sweep, but instead he's doing more like a jigsaw puzzle. And we're familiar with jigsaw puzzles that there are many, many different kinds of shapes, there are corners, there are edges, there are... Uh, ones in the middle which just, you know, are completely unnatural and there are things all over the place. But more so than that, the weird thing about jigsaw puzzles, which for some reason I'm not very good at jigsaw puzzles. I wish I was. Amy is awesome at them. She can sit down and like, thousand page, thousand page, thousand thing jigsaw puzzle, done. And I will sit at it and stare at it for like a month and be like, here's a corner. <laughs> I'm a big picture guy, but the thing is, not only in jigsaw puzzles are there shapes, but there are different colors, there are different color schemes that seemingly have nothing to do with each other. And there are harder ones like this to where the yellow over here has nothing to do with the purple and magenta over here, the blue over here has nothing to do with the uh, neon green up there. So it makes it challenging, but even in pictures to which there are an obvious picture, there are still bits and pieces which, on their own, don't seem connected to one another. For example, in this excerpt of a piece, this is an all-blue piece right here. This is an all-tan piece right here. That's an all-green piece over there. On their own, they don't do much. But put together, you start to see the big and complete picture that the puzzle is showing you. The text today, unlike nearly the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is a lot like a jigsaw puzzle. There are several things we're going to cover which don't have an obvious connection to one another, but they form the complete picture of the Sermon on the Mount. They form the complete picture of a kingdom citizen. They form a complete picture of someone, the image of the Beatitudes person when we started out the Sermon on the Mount. They form the complete picture. So our third, especially the first two things today, there are things that Jesus teaches which are important. 
They don't have an obvious connection to what's before and what's after. But keep in mind the big picture. Alright? Alright. The first thing that Jesus talks about in our text today, last week we talked about the uh, how we judge or how we don't judge based on how we worry or how we don't worry. When it comes to judging others, we talked that there were two kinds of judgment. There was a moral discernment by saying this is good, this is bad, this makes me more like God, this makes me less like God, and that is good and okay. We ought to do that, we need to do that. We do not, however, personally condemn others in the, that kind of judgment. Jesus talks about this verse right offhand, which is generally tried to connected, tried to be connected to the previous thing on judging, but in the Greek especially, the Greek doesn't help because there's not obvious paragraphs, there's not obvious um, sentence structure, there's not obvious things, and so the debate about this is on the side that this is actually a standalone teaching that is not necessarily connected to what's before or after, but is important in its own right. So what does this mean? Well, Matthew 7, 6 says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and they turn to attack you. Now, this has gotten some criticism by people by saying, whoever Jesus talking about, that's not very nice. Maybe. What is he saying? The first questions we need to ask of the text are, what do the words mean not to us, but to the people that would have heard them? Specifically, um, how is it structured and what does this mean? First thing we notice is that this is a what's called a chiastic structure saying, which is in the Psalms and in poetry you have a form which is A-B-B-A, as you kind of see here, which is there's something that's said, something else is said, that thing is repeated, and then you go back to the beginning. And so this is obviously a chiastic wisdom structure, a chiastic saying. So we have these two that are connected. Do not throw your pig's uh, pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot. And these are connected. Do not give dogs what is holy, lest they turn to attack you. So that helps a little bit. But then secondly, we have to ask, what is holy and what are pearls? What are we talking about here? What is Jesus bringing up as being holy or being pure or being sanctified or being important? Well, the best explanation is that when it comes to holiness and sanctification, we look at Leviticus and we look at certain food items, certain things that priests were to eat that no one else was. Whenever an offering was made, there were certain things that, yes, the whole thing was holy to God, but there were certain things that were holy, meaning set apart, sanctified, reserved for the priests to eat that would sustain their family. And we see this thing all over the place. There are things that are holy to priests, things that are holy to God. And so the thing is that we have to ask about this is what does Jesus say throughout this whole thing is holy, or set apart, or important, or of priority, or importance. And the best explanation from the whole context is God's will. Not necessarily heaven or salvation per se, but do not give dogs salvation. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not give your pearls what is important. Do not spend your time. Do not do things in God's will on these types of people, lest they trample them, lest they attack you. So we're interesting. Who is Jesus commanding not to do this to? Well, we have to look at what dogs and swine meant at that time. This is not. This is where this is where Jesus kind of meets an interesting road because Jesus, what is and was and shall be, 
the Son of God, the eternal Messiah for all men. However, Jesus also spoke in a very particular time, in a very particular place, with a very particular context, and that does matter. Dogs and swine, dogs and pigs, at this time, talking to Jews, were universal euphemisms for Gentiles. And yes, that means pretty much you and me. (laughs) Anyone who's not a Jew. Now, is this derogatory? Well, it's better to say that this is understood. This would have been universally understood by anyone to say Gentiles. And he's using an image there. Those and pigs are um, not thought of very highly. There are people that, uh, that you know, they, they don't respect things there. It's, it's not necessarily about the derogatoriness of it, but it's about the image that you get. Dogs, you can set anything in front of them. They don't think it's of value. They're just going to either attack it. Pigs, they don't care if you put a flame and yawn in front of them. They don't care if you put bacon, as weird as that is. They don't care if you put garbage. They will eat it. The whole point is that there are a certain type of people who are not going to think that what you have to offer is, one, valuable at this point. And so Jesus is saying, don't spend your time on them. Now, lest we say that Jesus said, don't evangelize, this particular saying, I believe, applied at that time and that time only to say, don't give what I'm giving you to Gentiles yet. We know from the rest of the New Testament, and we know even from Jesus' own sayings, that a later he's saying that to his people that the whole world will be part of this. You will preach of who I am to all the ends of the earth, but the thing is not yet. God's plan was to Jews first, and then in Acts 10 when Cornelius came in, then the Gentiles began to, begin to come into God's kingdom, and now it's open to everyone. This is something that Jesus is saying, which there's a principle behind it, but specifically he's saying to the people around him, don't give what I'm giving you to Gentiles yet. That's the specific context. But there is an interesting principle behind this little maxim. He's saying, don't give God's will, don't give salvation, don't give, you know, don't spend your energy, your time, don't put in front of people what is valuable to people who don't understand it or will trample it or attack you for it. Now, should we put ourselves out there at the expense and possibility of ridicule or even attacking for the gospel when it's appropriate? Sure. But what's the principle Jesus is talking about here? I think the principle that Jesus is talking about is something which speaks to us. Oftentimes, I've heard this verse quoted when we try to... Okay, I'm going to speak bluntly. You don't have to agree with me, but I'll speak plainly, okay? Oftentimes, I've heard this verse quoted when we try to evangelize to complete strangers who have no connection with us, and they reject us, and we go, oh, well, we tried. Don't put your pigs or pearls before swine. Dogs will tag it. And we use it, at least we have used it, as an excuse to go, well, we tried to evangelize to these people, but they just weren't ready for it. Hey, we, you know, oh, well, we tried. Don't, put your, don't cast your pearls before swine. That's not what this verse is talking about. I think what this verse is talking about, in principle is using your energies, using what's valuable, the gospel, salvation, your energy and time, using that not on people that you are not connected with, not on people that are necessarily, quote-unquote, not ready for it from you, not to people that you don't have a connection with, but to the people that are closest to you, first and foremost. 
as the Jews by this verse were saying, hey, you give this to other Jews, not Gentiles yet. I think the principle for us is you who have salvation, you who have eternal life, is it viable to give it to someone random that you're not connected with off the street that may or may not take it? Maybe, but focus on those around you. Use what's valuable, your time, what you have, the gospel, and use it to those who you deem valuable. Obviously, your family, your community, possibly even at your work. Anywhere you are that you have a connection with people, that they will see that you are valuable and what you have is valuable, and therefore you have that connection, you have that foundation. I think the principle for us is maybe focus the gospel and our efforts on those who are closest to us, first. Here's the thing, why I think this is a little bit in your face. Sometimes it's easier to come up to a complete stranger and ask, do you know where you're spending eternity, than to talk to your own sibling, or mother, or neighbor, or co-worker, someone that you know and you have to face the next day. It's easier to have someone go, I don't want that, leave me alone, and go, hey, I tried, and by the way, I'll never see them again, so it doesn't really affect me. True? This is something I think, this is a singular teaching, but it makes us think, who are we spending our efforts on, our time on, what we have on? Not saying that anyone is not worth trying to reach by any means. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. But are we spending time on showing the gospel to those who are closest to us as well as those who are far? And if not, why not? I could end it right there and probably go like, yeah, I need to work. Well, I do need to work on that. It's easier to talk to a complete stranger and be rejected than to talk to someone who's close to you. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Moving on in the jigsaw puzzle, however, he continues on and says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Once again, this is not really connected necessarily directly to those or to what's around it, but it's the principle Jesus is trying to teach. And this is also another verse which I've heard a little bit misapplied. It turns this often into talking about our relationship with prayer that we need to be persistent in prayer. That's true. How we need to ask boldly in prayer. That's true. And how God will, will always seek to, to answer us in some way. That's true. But that's not what this verse is focusing on. This verse, its emphasis is not so much about asking or teaching us how to pray, but to reassure us of something. And what is that? This verse is reassuring us of the trust that we have in God that when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, we can trust God because God is good. He continues on, the emphasis of this is in the latter part of the verse. If you who are evil 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The emphasis is not on the prayer. The emphasis is on he who hears and he who receives and the fact that God is good. You see, the people that Jesus were asked, were t- teaching this to was wondering at all. They're used to, you know, will, will God hear us? Will God answer us? And Jesus is reassuring them that, yes, the person who you're asking, the person who you're seeking answers from, the person who you're knocking on the door, he is good. So therefore you can trust whatever answer. He is good. The emphasis is on God. Not so much on the prayer. Now, do we need to be persistent in prayer? Yes. Do we need to be bold in prayer? Yes. But the thing is, I've noticed, is that oftentimes, we don't necessarily ask for the wrong things, but we don't ask enough of the things that we need most. If you want to really go on our relationship with prayer, we teach that, oh, we can't ask for the wrong things, we need to make sure we're asking in God's will. Usually that's not the problem. Usually we're not asking bold enough for the things that are actually most important in our life, like God's sanctification, refinement, boldness to ask our neighbor about Jesus, maybe. I'm connecting those. The question from this is that are there things that maybe you don't trust God about? Now, I, that's a hard question because no one's going to sit here in church and be like, no, I don't trust God. But what are the things that if you ask, you're afraid of God's answer? What are the things about if you ask, you're afraid of a no or a something else? See, that has to do with who you think God is. That has to do with if you believe that if you ask Him and He gives you something, that you can trust that and you believe His goodness. What if you don't get answered in the way you want? I like to remind us all that Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for Isaac. The two biggest things about God are unanswered prayers, theoretically, or answered in some ways other than what we want. And all that has to do with our perception of who God is. We can trust that God is good and gives good gifts. Although that speaks to the other two temptations, which is to try to figure things out ourselves, or to treat God like a pagan God, which is, God, I really want this, really want this, wear him down, Maybe he'll go, okay, fine, have this. That's a pagan God. <laughs> or try to say, no, God, I'm not going to ask you about this because I got this and I like my answer better. This is all about, do we believe that God is good? Can we trust him with anything and everything that we may ask? Are we willing to seek and knock on his door, a truly good God's door? Or do we want to trust in ourselves we want our own answers. Be afraid of what He might give us, although we can know what He gives us is good. Sorry, we're not done yet. Take a deep breath. <laughs> because the next verse is, well, this one. Out of that, He says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is actually the easiest verse in this whole section because. There is nothing complicated about understanding this. Some of you caught the emphasis just now. There's nothing difficult about understanding this. It's awful hard to do, though. Because you see, what this asks of us is what we talked about before. Self-awareness of our own shortcomings, of our own sins, of our own needs from God, our own needs from others. This needs humility. Oftentimes, to do this, 
requires an emphasis on peace and not always justice, at least in terms of human relationships. There's nothing simple about doing this. Although I can almost guarantee you, almost everyone watching and listening here, if I would say, do unto others as, you all would know it. And I pretty much guarantee you all believe in it. Until you have to act towards someone else in a way you don't want to, that you would prefer them to act to you. Not to call them out, but we see this in our boys all the time. Is that how you want to be treated? No. Why do you treat them that way? I don't know. <laughs> For being honest, sometimes that's our answer before God, isn't it? Why'd you do that? I don't know. <laughs> do you want to be true to that? No. There's nothing simple about understanding this. But this is one of the few, honestly, one of the few Bible verses where there's no explanation besides, as I like to say, just Nike it. Meaning, just do it. If only it were that simple. This is where it starts to connect, though, however. Because he goes on to say, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Once again, oftentimes I've heard this verse applied to the ultimate judgment about heaven, the ultimate sorting out of those in God's kingdom and not. But the thing is, none of the emphasis about the Sermon on the Mount is about one day. All of it is about right now. All of it is about something that you can take away as a hearer, as a listener, and do something about right now. So while I think there is in principle, obviously, of ultimately one day there are fewer people that will be a part of God's kingdom rather than not, this isn't just a wisdom saying about one day make sure you're you know, doing the right stuff because one day the narrow gate will come this is about right now so the question is we have to ask ourselves I'm not sure if I put the there it is on here what do we enter here and now what do we enter that is narrow what do we enter what in scripture calls us to come into what in scripture summons us to what the answer overwhelmingly, and I'll say this on purpose just to make the contrast, not saying it's exclusive, we're never called to be, he to be part of heaven. That I can see. We are always called to be a part of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, might you say, well, aren't they the same? Yes and no. Because heaven one day means that, well, I don't necessarily have to act the way I have to now. One day it will get sorted out. Right now, coming to Jesus is a choice you make at this very moment. Coming to Jesus and being part of his kingdom is a choice you make at this moment, and this moment, and this moment, and the next moment. As every moment, this is what it means to take up your cross and follow him. I have to have a picture already. I preempted myself. So what is Jesus calling us to enter here? He's calling us to enter himself. Remember in John 10, Jesus is the door, or the gate. The gate to what? Yes, salvation. Yes, eventual heaven. But it's more than that. Jesus is the gate to living and doing God's will. Kingdom living. Being in the kingdom. That's, I think, the life 
that Jesus is talking about here. He is not, his emphasis in the sermon is not about one day. It's about right now. And he's saying, For narrow it, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life right now. And those who find it are few. So what is what we're, ent- we're to enter? Jesus. What is in Jesus? Eternal life. How do we live that out? By doing God's will. By being an image bearer of God. By living in the kingdom. And that, brothers and sisters, I think the narrow gate is talking about. It's the fact that discipleship, true discipleship of Jesus, is not willy-nilly, and it's not whatever you want to do. It's a very specific and particular picture of how we're to live. What does it mean that Jesus is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? It means that we live like Christ. It means that we act like Christ, do like Christ, think like Christ, feel like Christ. And that's a very particular thing. One might say it's a very narrow way of living when it comes to the possibilities in the world right now. But it's the image of Christ in his life which then leads to ultimate eternal life. We know this right now. If you ask any random person out in the street, how fun would they say is a Christian's life where you don't get to, don't get to, don't get to, don't get to, don't get to. Now that's overstated, but that's the perception. The narrow gate is living in such a way which restricts ourselves to living like Jesus and only like Jesus. And just like the previous verse, that's easy to understand. Awful hard to do. By the grace and mercy of His Holy Spirit, only is it possible. But do we understand that? This is not talking about one day. This is talking about entering the narrow gate, meaning discipleship in the footsteps of Jesus and Jesus alone, and living like that, and the choices that that entails. That is a narrow gate, but that is the gate which leads to life. This is about each one of us and our choices to follow Jesus or not. It's as simple as that. This is about the narrow path of discipleship, what it truly means to grow in knowledge and intimacy and relationship with Christ. And as I said, this is about truly what it means to take up your cross daily and follow me, meaning Christ. Don't follow me. Follow him. Follow his, pick up his path, pick up his cross daily, or as I like to say, some of us need to do it hourly, minutely, secondly, nanosecondly, however, whatever applies to you. This is an everyday thing. And as I said before about worry, kingdom living requires our attention every moment. Because how quickly does it take for us to fall off and sin? Not very much. This is where some of this really does culminate, and this is our final passage we talked about this morning. Jesus goes from that and he says, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will be recognized by the, you recognize them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out your demons in, in, demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is not a fun one to teach or preach. This is not just talking about the judgment here and now, but this is talking about what the here and now leads to. What are some of the things we take from this? Well, let's talk about fruit. What is fruit? Once again, it's a metaphor for God's will. The path that you live, the life that you choose to lead, results in fruit. Either bad fruit or good fruit. The fruit here that Jesus is talking about, I think, is God's will and the result of living a life which is rooted in eternal life. Here's the thing which we don't like to talk about and we get confused about. This is what the whole book of... If Jake, if Jake, Jake Shore, if you're watching, we had this conversation. This is what the whole book of James is about. We are not saved by works, meaning there is nothing we can do to earn eternal life. However, Scripture makes it very clear that we are judged by our works. Rather, put another way, we are judged by what we do out of and from faith that we claim to have. And we know this. Someone who says, I believe in Christ, I believe in this and this, and I'm a Christian, I believe in love, peace, but you know, I do this, and then they go home and de- beat the wife, that makes sense. Well, it doesn't make sense, but we understand how that can be not right. And actually, it's the big picture that this verse is talking about. This is talking about the fruit of living in God's will, the works and deeds that you do, from that faith. I want you to notice something. This is where I'm going to start meddling if I haven't already, so just get ready for it. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You recognize them by their fruit. Here's the thing. Fruit can be faked. And oftentimes, we get caught up in the people that are doing the big thing that are leading the big ministries, that are charismatic leaders, that are, are people who, who, are, who will, I don't know, think any big thing, who will organize things, who will donate tons of money, who will serve endlessly, and one might think, that's good fruit. Yes, it is good fruit. But notice what is down here. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right? We're still on the same path. But then he says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Cast out demons. Do many mighty works in your name. Put another way. God, we've done big things for you. God, we've done incredible works and deeds for you. But Jesus will say what? I never knew you. What does this tell us? Jesus, when asked, you see, there were 613 laws of the Levitical Code, right? David reduced them to 10, Isaiah reduced them to 8, uh, Micah reduced them to 3. You'd think that Jesus would reduce it to 1. Well, he reduces it to 2, which are what? Love God, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? On this, Jesus says other places, is what the law and the prophets say. 
the entire law, the entire scope of God's will is reduced to loving God and loving others as yourself. What does that mean? It means that you actually have to know God and actually have a relationship with Him, an intimate relationship outside of whenever you're doing big things or outside of when you're at church or outside of when you're preaching or sermon prepping. On a personal note, that's so easy for a preacher to get into, the fact that we spend so much time in God's Word that we don't have a relationship with Him outside of our sermon preps and our sermons. That's something which I've struggled with. Sometimes I still struggle with it, and it's not intentional, but it's the fact that it happens. And also, in that, is loving others as yourself. There's no qualifier on that one to say at church or when you're doing ministry or anything. It means a holistic lifestyle of that. The whole point of this is saying that it's possible, it's possible to live and do things in God's name, do mighty works, even do good things, and yet still not have a relationship with God, but also still not treat people how they ought to be treated in normal everyday life. This is what the text is saying. Notice then what this says. False prophets are not those who are obviously trying to mess things up, who are obviously not trying to, to manipulate or to take over. Oftentimes, it's connected. They're the people who are doing the most big things. But yet, Jesus is saying, if they don't have a personal walk with God, and they don't treat people the way that they ought to be treated in the rest of life, they're the false prophet. Let's take one step deeper since we're meddling here. The thing is, as I talked to another brother today, Pharisees oftentimes don't recognize themselves as Pharisees. So the question that this text forces us to ask, and this is the question we don't want to, is that if this is about not the big things, not when I'm doing this, but this is about normal everyday life, this is about the normal everyday schedule, if this is about really holistically looking at God's will each and every moment, each and every day, connecting to it before, how I treat people, how I interact with God in my own time, not when I'm doing mighty things. I can be doing great things. I can be doing awesome things. I can be doing things in Jesus' name. And I can still not be doing what Jesus commands. Therefore, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you meaning me, the false prophet. Am I the false prophet? The thing is, I skipped this here because I was prepping up for it. We like to live, and we like to look at, and we like to, to talk about the mountaintops of faith. We like to talk about the big things that we do. We like to talk about even the mountaintops of the week, right? Church, and and doing ministries, and, and, and serving other people. But the thing is, as we all know, life isn't lived on the mountaintops. Life is lived in the valleys. 
Normal everyday life isn't all mountaintop experiences. Wouldn't that be great? It's not every day that Elijah could confront the prophets on Mount Carmel. He did that, and then the next day he was on the run from Jezebel. Life is lived in the valleys. And if you are not the same type of Christian in the valleys as you are in the mountaintops, you're a false prophet. If you are doing the big things for God, if you are doing wonderful things for God, even in His name, but you don't have a personal relationship with God, meaning that you have your own relationship with Him, you know Him, you have an intimate relationship with Him, you're spending time with Him, that you are seeking to build that relationship, and therefore you're not treating others in accordance with the way that they ought to be treated, you're the false prophet. And the consequence is not just relationships that are broken, but ultimately you are judged by those words. That's not a fun thing to talk about. That's not a fun thing to ask. That's not a fun thing to consider. But it's what we must consider. thing is, though, the good news is that Jesus has done everything possible to make sure that we are not false prophets. He's done everything possible to make sure and to try, from his perspective, to lead us and guide us in the people we ought to be. So the choice, even if you had to say yes to that question just now, the choice is still there. But it means you can't live the way you were. It means you can't act the way you were. It means that you need to take, as if we're not, but take the words of the Sermon on the Mount to heart. Take the Beatitudes to heart. This is the whole flow of the Sermon on the Mount almost culminating in this moment. So talk after this about the results of this, about the wise and foolish builders, but this actually, brothers and sisters, is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. The fact that unless you take the whole picture of what the Sermon on the Mount, unless you take the whole picture of what it means to be a kingdom person, the whole picture of a Beatitudes person to heart, Jesus doesn't know you. The obvious things are, does Jesus know you by even declaring yourself to be a part of his kingdom? to asking to be a part of his kingdom by declaring yourself dead and raised anew in baptism. Those are the obvious works. And those are important. The question is for brothers and sisters who are following him already. Is nothing different than the question we ought to ask ourselves already. Do we know him? Are we taking others, the love of others, in every ordinary moment as well as the big picture are we taking the whole picture of what it means to live daily on the cross? Seriously. And are we willing to do what's necessary to make ourselves look like Jesus? Is it fun always? We can be honest. No. Is it worth it? Yeah. 
This is our calling, brothers and sisters, not to just sit here and say everything's fine, but to hold each other to the standard, not by our own standard or judgment, but to hold our standard to the standard of Jesus. We're here for each other, and we're all on the same journey, in faith, in the Holy Spirit, in God's wisdom and grace. It's possible. And God expects it from us in order to fulfill His will on earth. The question is, in general, what must we do today to become more of the kingdom person that God expects us to be? I invite you, if you are even a part of the kingdom, obviously, to consider what that means. And I ask you and pray for each of us to consider that question and how it can impact not only our journey, but the journey of the kingdom today and tomorrow. Heavenly Father, we ask these things and talk about these things because you talk about them and because they're important. We talked some directly about some direct things today, God. I pray that you work in our hearts and minds to mold us and to shape us into the way that you want and that we have the boldness and courage even to be able to address the things in our own life which you are waiting for us to address and to address in us that you can make us more like you. I always pray, God, help us to be the church that we can be in you and the people that we can be and ought to be in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.